Support for this podcast comes from you and Yankwich & Associates, since 1997 working to provide expert, responsive service in intellectual property law to biotech, biopharmaceutical, and biochemical companies worldwide. More information at yankwich.com. Support for Innovation Hub comes from Cambridge Savings Bank. Introducing the CSB1 package, a checking account combined with investing through Connect Invest to help you build a better tomorrow. CambridgeSavings.com slash CSB1. Welcome to Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller. When pollsters ask Americans, what's the biggest economy in the world? Americans say, by a pretty healthy margin, China. The reality is, if you're looking at GDP, the U.S. is actually still on top. But our awareness of and our worry about China clearly shapes how we think in the U.S. We see Chinese students in cities like Shanghai doing extremely well on worldwide standardized tests. And American parents are left to wonder, is China pulling ahead of us? Are they training the next generation more effectively? When journalist Lenora Chu, who grew up in Texas, moved to Shanghai, she decided to enroll her three-year-old son, Rainy, in a Shanghai public school. And she quickly got a crash course in how the Chinese hope to get ahead and how different their approach is from ours. She was a journalist. She's the author of Little Soldiers, An American Boy, A Chinese School, and The Global Race to Achieve. Lenora, thanks for your time. Thanks, Kara, for having me. So how quickly at the beginning of the school year for Rainey um, do you think you realized, like, whoa, this is a very different uh, brand of education from what I'm used to? Probably day one. (laughs) Well, first of all, I mean, it's China, right? Shanghai is a city of 26 million people, if you can Mm -hmm. imagine. And when I'm walking to school, I feel like all of those people are on this school's lawn. I mean, it's just jostling your way to the classroom (laughs) door. Everybody's out, you know, for the first day of school. Mom, dad, grandparents. And it's just a Mm -hmm. mass of humanity. Mm -hmm. And, you know, my son comes home that first week of school and says, my teacher forced me to eat something I didn't want to eat. She basically lined up all the kids in the classroom and put eggs in their mouths multiple times until they were forced to swallow. How do you force a kid to swallow? Well, so my son, in the way he tells it at three, and it took a while to get the story out, but he kept spitting it out, kept spitting it out, and she just kept putting the next spoonful in. And by the fourth time, he had no choice but to uh, to eat the egg. Wow. And, and over time, did that make him like eggs? That's the funny thing as a parent. You hate the process, but you might like the outcome. And he loves <laughs> eggs now. And that is the great conundrum of the Chinese way. You know, they think that sometimes your kids just have to do things they don't want to do, like learn math, eat eggs, you know. <laughs> I feel like as myself, as an American parent, and you probably too, that there's something so uh, disturbing about a person holding your kid's mouth shut till they swallow. Yes. And I let her know. So I said, this is not how we do things in America. We don't use methods of force. Right. And we had this conversation and she said, well, how do you do it? And does it work? And she's right. It doesn't always work. And later she said, I should never question her authority in front of a child again. Mm. You know, in China, teacher knows best. And mm. this is positive as well as negative. Even the Chinese know. What does the egg eating incident, but I'm sure there's lots of others in that vein. What does it tell you about like what the Chinese want their kids to be versus what Americans want their kids to be? They definitely value 
the idea of authority and that the elder knows best. You know, the teacher stands at the front of the classroom and all the signaling is about her knowing what's best for these children. And there's also this idea that individual will should be suppressed for the good of the group. You know, if you have a medical condition or a special need or a learning disability, there really is no place for you in the Chinese system. And in this way, they're able actually to make great progress, if you think about it. And this sort of difference in culture in some ways accounts for what they value. Um, It's also important to know that Chinese education is all about passing tests. You Mm -hmm. advance to the next level Mm -hmm. of schooling based on an entrance exam score, and that drives anxiety and behavior. So talk a little bit about this test-taking system and what it's like, because I think a lot of American parents would say, gee, it feels like you know, we're always teaching to the test. And, you know, every every state has their own setup and their own, you know, bunch of tests that you have to pass generally to, like, get your high school diploma. Um, but how would you say their system is different from our system, even though we both have tests? I think that the, t- the tests in China are much more monumental to a child's success you know, especially at that high school entrance exam. So there's 18 million babies born in China every year. In the U.S., it's only 4 million, right? Mm -hmm. So you can get a sense of the scale. Mm -hmm. And at that high school level, you lose 7 or 8 million. They just drop off out of the education system. And at the college entrance exam, you lose another 2 to 3 million. That is an incredibly high-stakes exam-based system. And, you know, in the U.S., there are many more options for kids who, say, don't get into their top choice of college. The community college system is also very robust. There are a lot of options generally for families and for students, and China still hasn't built out that system yet, Hmm. unfortunately. By the way, what happens to kids who um, don't pass the high school entrance exam or don't pass the college entrance exam? Like, What kind of jobs do they get? Where do they go? So it used to be that there was a factory job waiting for most of those kids. You know, when they're 17, they don't get into high school, then they immediately go out to work. Here's the problem. The economy is slowing down. The manufacturing base is inching over to Bangladesh, Indonesia, other parts of Southeast Asia. Mm-hmm. A story we've heard before, right? Exactly. Yeah. This is going to be a huge source of instability because China was built on promising families, prosperity, and wealth. And we're going to start to see some fraying around the edges because little Dream Dream in my book, he's not going to get the job that his mother did. What do we do then? What does he do then, you know, if he's not able to continue his educational journey? Can you talk about other things that Rainey experienced that surprised you, um, but that were in service to this idea of like, you know, pushing kids ahead and making them ready so that they can be those people who make it past the high school entrance exam and and into college. So you know what I thought was very interesting? When they started counting exercises at a very early age, you know, four and five years old, and these were double-digit and triple-digit counting exercises. And when my son came home with this worksheet, I thought, oh, no, this is going to be terrible. He's not going to be able to do it. He's going to feel bad about himself. But when he wasn't getting it, all the language was needs to work harder. The teacher would actually scrawl that across the top, needs to work harder. And the message was every kid can get this with enough effort. Hmm. There were no participation trophies, you know, and and frankly, they actually ranked progress on a chart that was posted on the wall. And when I saw that, too, my heart sort of jumped. Mm -hmm. But again, because the Chinese don't make this link between achievement in the classroom and self-esteem, 
you know, parents are more likely to accept the scores because they know it's just about working harder, working harder, and every kid can get it. In the U.S., we're more likely to believe in sort of innate talent, right? And that's why we give out the participation trophies because we're afraid kids are going to feel bad about themselves. Mm -hmm. But what if instead we believed that every kid could learn math? What did you learn from following different high school kids in different situations? Because, you know, we should say your child went to this fairly, it was a public school, but, you know, it got some fairly sort of affluent people going to it. But you, not everybody you followed was affluent. Uh, They were all, they all wanted success for their kids. But like, what happened to those kids as they went through that journey of high school? So I followed two Shanghai high school students, and one of them, his name is Darcy, and it's interesting to me. He exemplifies secrets. You know, when you look at him, he's perfect. His hair is perfect. His bangs are always following in the right way. (laughs) His, you know, is the top math scorer in his class. Teachers love him. He was elected class monitor. But he had a secret girlfriend, you know. He had a secret mobile phone his father didn't know about. And he was actually a rural kid pretending to be a city boy. He had the wrong household registration. And so after getting to know him, I realized that his parents actually divorced. And his father married a Shanghai woman so that he could have the right registration to go to high school in Shanghai. Mm. So he illustrated two things. First of all, nobody wants to raise a kid in the countryside because the odds are so much harder for success. And secondly, there's a lot of corruption and people taking shortcuts to try to stay on that educational ladder. You know, his parents divorced so he'd have better educational opportunities. So there is a secret life um, to Darcy that I didn't know until I hung around with him for a few years. Hmm. The other girl, Amanda, too, she hated her Chinese classroom and didn't really understand what Shakespeare was about until she came to the U.S. for a year of high school and was able to read The Merchant of Venice in its unabridged full version. If you can think about it, we take that for granted. We can read whatever we want. But the Chinese classroom, it's snippets or, you know, texts are censored. And that was another thing I realized, you know, kids are not encouraged to really express themselves independently or, you know, even read what they want to read. I'm Kara Miller. This is Innovation Hub, and I'm talking with Lenora Chu, a journalist and the author of Little Soldiers, An American Boy, A Chinese School, and the Global Race to Achieve. You also looked at another kid, a rural kid, whose story did not turn out um, either the way that he or his family hoped. Can you talk about his story? Yes, yeah, so I, I follow a, a kid, little Jean Jean in the countryside, and his story was heartbreaking because his mother was a migrant worker to Shanghai. And this is very common. If you you leave the countryside to go to a big city to find a job and you leave your child behind. So Lauren had not lived with little Jean Jean for 17 years. Finally, he's facing that high school entrance exam and he's about to fall off the educational ladder. Mm. She's frantic. She moves home to try to get him back on the ladder. But the truth is she's illiterate. She's not educated herself. And he does indeed fail that entrance exam. And when I looked into the numbers, he's one of those seven, eight million kids a year in China who don't make it to the next level. And so when you look at China, it's not a monolith. You know, outcomes are very different depending on whether you're urban or rural and even whether your family has money because money buys test prep and Mm -hmm. tutoring and extracurriculars. So it's very much you know, looking like what's happening in U.S. education, mm-hmm. frankly, that tie to socioeconomic status. So I just have a question. When the, when the rural mom 
um, went away from her family uh, and spent like 17 years, you said, away from her son. I assume she was doing it so she could make money and give her children a better life. That's exactly right. And how devastating is it to work so long for that? You know, she was paying for test prep and boarding school for her son. And then to find out that he really couldn't pass that high school entrance exam because he had no parental supervision. He'd Mm -hmm. become addicted to video games. He had had a junk food habit. And when she rushed back to try to live with him, not only did she give up her salary in the city, but she was unable to help him because she couldn't do his physics homework, Mm -hmm. you know. So it, it's it's devastating. This is a major problem for China. All that social instability that they're worried about is going to come from the countryside for families who cannot keep up. So you just talked about these high school students. Um, hearing their stories, even though some people are sort of on their, on its face, um, they're successful, and other people are not, they, like i.e. they just don't make it through the college entrance exam, um, they all sound in some ways as you describe it, like um, they have serious issues that they're grappling with. Now, not that American high school students don't, but does that give you pause as to the Chinese system? Like, oh, you know, even the people who are succeeding, you know, okay, first of all, you've got this rural urban divide, but then even the people who are succeeding, they're reading books they don't really get. And, you know, they're kind of, they have to kind of hide their identity because only certain kinds of identities are acceptable, you know? That's a great point. And that's why, you know, the last third of my book, I really wanted to think about what does the Chinese way of education do well? And there are a few things. And it's really about the attitudes. You know, the system is brutal. Not every kid gets through. But in the early years, all the attitudes around education, the respect for the teacher, the belief that every kid can learn difficult subjects, these are some of the things that my son has internalized from spending several years in the system. And I really think that that's the way to go. You know, teachers in China enjoy a social status that's tops in the world. It's on par with doctors. And China, the government, when they look at education reform, they know they need to keep social status of teachers extremely high. They're doubling the funding going to teacher salaries. And to me, that's a great signaling around what's important in education. Um, You you talked to an expert in education from UCLA who told you, This is a quote. We do not know what it means to work hard until we see how hard others work. We do not understand what children can accomplish until we have seen what other children the same age can do. You know, you grew up in Texas. Do you feel like now seeing primary education in China, actually, and secondary education, you have a new understanding of what kids can do who are four or 14? I do. That's absolutely right. And I think you know, when you look at Chinese educators, they are looking everywhere, Finland, Singapore, the U.S., the U.K., to see what we're doing well in education. And they're trying to adopt some of those attitudes and methods back home. I don't feel that we're doing the same thing in the mm-hmm. U.S. There's sort of a complacency mm-hmm. to where we are in education. Either that or it's completely polarized. Where do we go? You know, public or private? Do we empower states or deploy a national mandate? The debate is incredibly polarizing, and we're not really making progress. And I think that's one thing I've learned from the Chinese way is that they're so open to change, and they understand the necessity for it, and that gives them a leg up. What do you think they see when they look at America? And I mean, for the, for good and for bad. What they love about what we do is that the teacher, and I, and I visited four classrooms in four states for this book in the U.S., okay. the teacher is always talking about 
hey, kids, what do you think? What do you think about what we just talked about? And just the language, not giving kids the answer. Life is not a multiple choice question test. We're asking them to think critically every single day. And then kids come home to the dinner table and parents were asking the same questions. The Chinese kid doesn't do that. He goes from teacher knows best classroom to parent knows best at home. And he is not really developing those sort of critical thinking and decision-making skills. Mm -hmm. They know we do that better. Mm -hmm. And the other thing is that sort of intrinsic motivation. We're so good at getting kids to love learning. And part of that is allowing them to explore. So this is really funny. A Chinese teacher came back from the U.S. and she said, you know, in the preschool classroom, kids get to sit in circles and they move around the classroom (laughs) whenever they want. And I said, yes, you know, And, and just that alone is about letting kids explore. You know, the Chinese preschool classroom, it's rows, three rows, you know, kids pack tightly in and they have to sit there for an hour and they get up for water at prescribed times. But, you know, they're learning these little sort of just the way you arrange the classroom, just the time that you get to get up to go to the bathroom. This is just anathema to them, but they're Mm -hmm. learning. And did you worry about your own son, that like his ability to color outside the lines or think differently or think creatively, that that was going to be like, he might learn math great, but that some of that was going to be systematically like taken out of him as he went through school? I did. I had a lot of anxiety about this particular issue. And What's great about my son, though, is he goes from teacher knows best and he comes home to us and he has an equal seat (laughs) at the table. And I didn't see any evidence that his creativity or expression was squelched. And here's the other thing that I like about the Chinese way. Creativity needs a strong base of knowledge. And he has that. He That is prioritized in his primary schooling environment. And so, you know, people forget that about creativity. You still need expertise and knowledge. That's an important foundation. Lenora Chu is a journalist living in Shanghai. She's the author of Little Soldiers, An American Boy, A Chinese School, and the Global Race to Achieve. Lenora, thank you so much. Thanks, Kara. We've got a link to a recent piece that Lenora Chu wrote in The New York Times. It's called, Will the Next Steve Jobs Be from China? From PRI and WGBH Radio, I'm Kara Miller, and this is Innovation Hub. Support for Innovation Hub comes from the Museum of Science in Boston, working to inspire everyone to push the boundaries of what's possible through hands-on exhibits, interactive programs, K-12 engineering curricula, and educator resources. Learn more at mos.org. And from Dana-Farber Cancer Institute, analyzing the genetic weaknesses of more than 25,000 tumors to craft precision treatments for cancer. More at DanaFarber.org slash BeatCancer. Rewind a few decades, and most parents in America knew what sorts of jobs could earn you a high salary. Lawyer, doctor, banker, business owner. Obviously, a lot of people wanted their kids to be those things, and they still do. But to that list, you might want to add software engineer, IT specialist, website designer, Not surprisingly, we're in the midst of a big shift away from college majors that would have been just fine if you were applying to law school, like philosophy or English, and we're moving towards computer science, engineering, and other STEM majors. We talked to a few college students focusing on STEM, one from California, two from Massachusetts, and we asked them, do you feel better prepared for the working world than your liberal arts counterparts? Honestly, kind of yes, but 
in some ways, no. I mean, yes, I'm more prepared scientifically, but I also don't have more of the, I don't know, global view that some um, liberal arts majors might have because they have time to study stuff outside the classroom that I don't. I think I'm probably a little biased because I don't know anything about being a liberal arts major. But if going off of what I know now, I would say probably just because I feel like we learn a lot more applications of like basically what we're doing in class is what we will be doing in the workplace. I think it's important in life and in the world that there's a good balance of people um, because you can't just have, you know, science, only science or only arts. I mean, I want to pursue medical school, so bio is good for that, but... um, You know, you could equally major in psychology or also major in philosophy and go into medicine, you know. So there's a lot of different ways to get to where you're going. That last sentiment, that we need lots of different kinds of people in the world, that's one that has resonance with George Anders. Anders is a contributing writer at Forbes. He's a former Pulitzer Prize winner and the author, most recently, of You Can Do Anything, The Surprising Power of a Useless Liberal Arts Education. George, thanks for being here. Thanks for the chance to be on the show. So uh, what is wrong with thinking that, look, we're clearly embracing tech more and more. And so if you want a kid to succeed, that probably should be what they, they focus on in college. So here's the interesting thing about the tech boom, that you've got this small nucleus of very engineering-centered jobs. But then you've got all these outer orbitals of things that still need that philosophy major, that anthropology major, because tech doesn't work until you connect tech with people. And the connecting with people stuff requires social skills, good communication, the ability to work through murky problems. So let me give you a couple examples. Uh, If you're any kind of company that's got a web-facing presence to the outside world, you've got to make that website hum and sing and just be pleasant to be on. And who can help you do that? It's the anthropology majors. They come in, they get to know your users, they do a lot of user research, user design, user interface, and all of a sudden those skills that they were trained that were originally meant to be used with villagers in Guatemala turn out to be pretty good to use with artists in Brooklyn. Hmm. And I open the book with an example of a guy who took his anthro degree into a user experience job with Etsy, the um, global marketplace for arts and crafts. So those useless degrees actually don't turn out to be so useless after all. And do your Etsys and your Facebooks and stuff, do they actually go around looking for people with anthropology degrees thinking like, these are very helpful skills for certain kinds of, of jobs? So they come most of the way there. What they look for is people who are really good communicators. Uh, Facebook, one of their things was we like people who can work through ambiguity. And if you think about it, engineering is not about working through ambiguity. Engineering is about getting the right answer. So all of these ambiguity experts turn out to be sociology majors and political science majors and the like. So they're not explicitly asking for the degree, but implicitly they're setting up a bunch of requirements that mean if you've got that kind of degree, you've probably got what Facebook wants. You um, have interviewed a ton of people who majored in humanities um, and then got all sorts of jobs, actually quite a few of them in Silicon Valley or in the tech industry, although maybe not like doing traditional tech things. Give me an example. Talk about one of those people who had what we might consider an unlikely story and kind of speaks to the mom or the dad who's like, listen, it's a ton of money to send somebody to college. I'm, you know, going into debt for it. I'd really, really like to make sure that this kid can get a job coming right out. So maybe they should just be an engineer because I feel like that's safe. So let me tell you the story of Mylene Garcia. 
She was a sociology major at Berkeley. She started out in community college. She was married to a um, a guy in the military service and was on a um, you know, Southern California community college with no national reputation, got good grades, made it to Berkeley. Uh, and then what do you do with a sociology degree? And initially, she started out working for some foundations and some nonprofits and the Department of Labor. But she was seeing this incredible boom in the way we were using smartphones to create apps for everything in the world of commerce. You know, you can book your, your plane tickets, you can write your Yelp review, you can share your Instagram mm-hmm. photos, on and on. But nothing was happening in city government. And she was going, I am so committed to programs that will help people, that will reach the, um, the dispossessed, the people who are marginalized in society. Government's the place to do it. And they've still got websites that look like it's 1998. And that's very hard for people to use. So she has ended up in Oakland as a digital initiative specialist. And in the city of Oakland, she's the one who figures out, okay, how can you pay your parking ticket with your phone? How can you change your jury duty date with your phone? How can you tell the mayor that you just don't like what the mayor's doing and you want her to do something different? And she's building out a whole service. And the fact that she has this sociology training that lets her think about different influence groups in the city and the way power is held and dispersed and consolidated makes her incredibly effective. And also the fact that her own life experience includes a lot of stages in life where she was scraping to make ends meet and she was not going out to buy the iPhone 8. Mm -hmm. She was getting by with older technology makes her very attuned to what's going to work for people. So you take a little bit of tech and a sociology degree and you've got a really effective combination. How do people know that that's not just like... You know, a one in a million kind of shot. Like, of course, there are people who major in liberal arts who who succeed. But, you know, that doesn't mean it's um, as sure a thing as other kinds of majors. I mean, do you feel like this is a, you know, a special case or like, talk about that a little bit? So there's data on this, and you're you're totally right. I mean, uh, as much as we love anecdotes, at some point you have to go. What are what do all the numbers add up to? And LinkedIn actually did an analysis of more than a million relatively recent college graduates, and said, "Okay, what's your college path, and what brought you into the tech sector?" And they found tens and tens of thousands of people who'd come out with liberal arts degrees and were now working in uh, the broader definition of tech. So. Human relations, the people who are doing the recruiting, the people who are doing the training, the people who are doing the benefits. When fast-growing companies like Airbnb expand, a lot of times they're bringing in people with a liberal arts degree. The periphery of sales, marketing, those kinds of areas, uh, there's all kind of need for people who can tell a story, who can relate to the other, the person on the other side. But um, yeah, if the answer is, is this you know, three examples that I'm trying to turn a trend into? No. You, you look at the LinkedIn numbers and you know, you're looking at 7 to 10% of college graduates are finding this kind of path. And it's never talked about. Hmm. You're listening to Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller. I'm talking with George Anders. He's a contributing editor at Forbes and the author of You Can Do Anything, The Surprising Power of a Useless Liberal Arts Education. If somebody said to you, yeah, I'm sold. I'm going to major in art history or, or you know, English or whatever, but I do have some time on my schedule. What things do you think I should take that are not, you know, the kind of traditional humanities courses? What do you, what do you think would make that history major more marketable? So the first thing I would say is take a couple statistics classes. We used to regard uh, calculus as sort of the pathway for math. And if you want to build bridges, you do need your calculus. 
But if you're going to deal with data, which is mm -hmm. much more common now, right. uh, having some sense, not just of what's a standard deviation, what's a sample size, but what kind of questions can I ask with data? What kind of answers am I going to get back that are definitive? What are the holes in my statistical model that I have to be really careful about? And if you can work with numbers, even on that basic level, or if you can run a meeting in which you're surrounded by people who do have the data, you can be very effective at a lot of different levels. So that would probably be my, my big recommendation of, you know, if you're going to ground yourself a little bit in um, the technical side of the world, bring that in. Beyond that, a little bit of economics. Uh, and economics can get very theoretical and very mathematical quite fast. I was an econ major, and, you know, they're still equations that'll make me tremble. But, you know, the basics of supply and demand, you know, price and how that, that influences things, uh, you don't need a ton of it. But if you've got a bit of it, you're going to be much more effective in a business setting. So those would be the two. So let's talk about money for a second. Um, you know, as I mentioned, there's been a quite a precipitous drop in the, just in the last several years in the number of people uh, majoring um, in humanities subjects. Um, how does this break down in terms of income? I mean, do I just wonder if like people from more affluent backgrounds feel like it's okay to do the philosophy major because if I struggle for a couple of years trying to figure out post-graduation, like where I put myself or how I can get a job, that's okay. I have the cushion, you know, and maybe lower income folks are like, well, I better go with the sure thing right away because I need to start paying back these loans and so on. So I had an excerpt in the Atlantic magazine looking at what happens for first-generation families where someone is the first in their family to go to college, and they're looking at a major in psychology or sociology or English. And I've got a couple ideas so that that transition works well, because you're quite right. There's the risk that if the first year or two is a little bit bumpy, some families can ride that out just fine right, and some right. others can't. Right. So here's some specifics that I think can help on that. Uh, the first thing is you're going to be a much stronger job candidate if you've had one or two really interesting internships along the way. Mm -hmm. In a lot of the areas that I'm, I'm talking about, particularly public sector, nonprofits, the like, it's hard to get a paying internship. Mm -hmm. And what I see a, a handful of colleges doing, and I want more of them to do, is to set up a system where if you're coming from a lower income background and you're offered an unpaid internship, your university has a fund mm -hmm. that will top you up to 5000 for the summer or yeah. some amount of money that will pay your rent give you spending money, maybe give you a little bit that you can take into the the next school year uh, so that you can take that internship and right, you can right. go work for the Girls Who Code program in Morocco or you can go um, you know, try and do some sort of community service or get to know the inner workings of a small foundation. And it doesn't take that much money to do it. Alumni love to give money for it. I've mm -hmm. had development people tell me that is the easiest ask because you go to successful business people and say, would you like to set up a program mm -hmm. that will help graduates of your school get good jobs if they come from humble backgrounds? And the answer is, you know, what size check would you like? You know, bring me my pen. Right, right, right. So I wonder, having done all this research on college, what do you feel like in 2017 college is for I mean, especially, especially as you see prices for both public and private institutions skyrocket. So we want college to do a lot of things, and some of them overlap quite nicely, and some of them are a little bit contradictory. But let's build the pyramid, and I think we need to start at the first. College does need to help you professionally with your career. It's just too expensive to go for simply improving your mind. You should 
If you, if you only want to improve your mind, sign up for a books list or take a couple evening classes. But college is meant to offer you um, a way to get to a better economic and, and social place in life. But on top of that, it's meant to widen your horizons, to show you a lot of things that you didn't know otherwise, to make you a more informed citizen. Uh, when I showed up at college, I knew what my dad did for a living. I had a hazy idea of what my uncle did and a couple neighbors. My horizons didn't go that far, and the first 18 months were just revelatory. It was sort of this amazing new world of all these different specialties, and I, I discovered historians and what they did and how they wrote about very complicated events and made them all seem clear and lucid, and that was kind of magical. And I took a class on Dostoevsky, and I got it into you know how you analyze human character. And those have actually been really useful for me in you know, evolving as a writer and starting to do books. And I've never written about the history of Reconstruction, but I've used a lot of things from that class to become a better organizer and a better writer. And I think college has that transformative power for people. So I don't want to lose that. I don't want it to become just a vocational school that this is not auto shop for the mind. Uh, and so we need to somehow marry that those two functions of getting people the skills they need to find a good job and then just widening people's horizons so they can be great citizens. George Anders is a former Pulitzer Prize winner. He's the author most recently of You Can Do Anything, The Surprising Power of a Useless Liberal Arts Education. George, thanks for your time. Thank you. Anders cites Wake Forest University near Raleigh, North Carolina, as an example of a liberal arts school that carefully remade itself in an effort to ensure that students saw a path from a liberal arts major to a high-quality job. We've got the story of how they did it at our website, innovationhub.org. Support for Innovation Hub comes from Mimecast. Nearly 30,000 companies worldwide use Mimecast to help prevent cyber attacks like ransomware, phishing, and impersonation attacks. Mimecast, committed to making email safer for business. Mimecast.com. Assume you get a monetary windfall. Not a big windfall, but something that you know might put a smile on your face. $40, say. What is the best way to spend that money to maximize your happiness? It may not surprise you that even though all of us want to be happier, we often make terrible decisions about how to spend our money. Ashley Willen studies how we spend and what kinds of decisions boost our quality of life. She's an assistant professor of business administration at Harvard Business School. Ashley, welcome. Thank you so much. So first, um, let's look at that question of whether a modest amount of money can buy some happiness, uh, which you just looked at in a study. So if you have that $40 and you want to maximize the happiness that you'll get out of it, what are the various sort of approaches that you can take? Yeah. So we asked a group of 100 working adults at a science museum in Canada, if we gave you 40 bucks, how would you spend this money on a Saturday or Sunday to promote happiness? And we found that most people said that they would buy stuff for themselves. They would go clothes shopping. Some people said that they would go out for a meal. Some people said that they would donate that money. And a very, very small percentage of people said that they would use that money to save themselves time by, like, hiring a house cleaner or getting someone to mow their lawn. And then when we actually ran an experiment where we gave a group of working adults, 60 working adults, $40, and we told them in one weekend that they had to spend this $40 on stuff. And then the next weekend, 
had to spend that money in a way that would save them time, house cleaning, lawn mowing, getting a meal out. We saw that people who spent money on time-saving purchases, so on the weeks where they made that purchase, they spent 40 bucks to save themselves time, they reported greater end-of-day happiness and less stress than when they bought a material purchase for themselves. So our studies together suggest that people don't do a very good job of knowing what's going to make them happier. They think that they should be spending that $40 to buy themselves clothes or sneakers, something cool. And what we actually find is that the very few people in our sample who said that they would spend that money on time, when we actually give people money, that those people are better off. How do you measure happiness, by the way? One of the best ways of measuring how happy someone is is by asking them. We're very good at knowing how we're feeling. So we ask people, how happy are you feeling? And this tracks with more objective measures, even economic growth. So there's been a lot of research validating the self-report measures that we use in our study. Do we know anything about short-term happiness versus long-term happiness? Because if I go out and buy a shirt, I may be moderately happy today, (laughs) but I mean, I can wear it for a long time, presumably. Yeah. So, I mean, in the context of our studies, we found that people who buy time, they report greater overall life satisfaction. Uh So it seems that these mood benefits that we get from spending money on time-saving purchases seem to accumulate and then promote greater overall life satisfaction over time. So if people are overall happier who, you know, hire somebody to clean their house or hire somebody to mow their lawn than people who go out and just, like, buy a pair of earrings or buy some boots or whatever it is, why don't more of us do the, like, paying somebody for their services kind of thing rather than buying the stuff kind of thing? We're studying this question right now because it's fascinating. In our research, we surveyed over 800 millionaires, and those are clearly people who can afford to to pay for time-saving services. And just over half of those millionaires said that they spent money to save themselves time. So even among people who can clearly afford it, Mm -hmm. there seems to be this something getting in the way of us spending money to save Mm -hmm. time. Mm And so there's a couple of different things that I think are going on. The first, and this may be no surprise to (laughs) anyone listening, is that we're not very good planners. We always think we're going to have more time tomorrow than we do today. Hmm. There's been research that has studied this effect, um, and they call it the yes, damn effect. (laughs) Meaning, I always say yes to things, but then when that time actually comes, oh, shoot, like, I really shouldn't have said yes to that. Why did I think I was going to have enough time to, you know, as an academic, write that book chapter or get on that plane or... And so, I am among it, the many people who do this. Well, because if you ask me something and the thing is in four months, I'm like, well, sure, because, well, A, that'll never come. And B, I'm sure in four months I'll have things better figured out than I have them figured out today. But of course, four months hence, I'm exactly the same person as I am right now. And then I still have to do that thing. Exactly. And so time-saving purchases require a bit of future planning. It requires us to know that we're going to be busy next Saturday, that we're going to be so busy that maybe it would be helpful to have someone clean our house instead of us doing it ourselves. And so that's one reason. Just asking people in our, our research, just getting people to think that they'll be as busy tomorrow as they are today, encourages people to buy time-saving services. I'm Kara Miller. This is Innovation Hub. I'm talking with Ashley Willens, an assistant professor at Harvard Business School and co-author of a study looking at when money does and does not buy us happiness. There's one category of stuff we didn't really talk about. So we talked about buying things, physical things you can just take home with you and enjoy. Um, But that doesn't seem to make you nearly as happy as like having a clean house. 
how about the experiences? Like, okay, I've got forty dollars. Forty dollars is enough for a nice meal for me and somebody else. Let's go out and I mean, it won't save me any time. In fact, it'll take time. But it, it's like a fun thing to do. Yeah. So there's been a lot of past research showing that experiential purchases going out to a really nice meal, going to the movies are good for happiness. Mm. We're not saying that by, you know, buying experiences is not as good for happiness as time-saving purchases, but I think that time-saving purchases are a more overlooked category of spending. Whereas most research and most people think about buying themselves into positive experiences, most people don't think about spending money to buy themselves out of negative experiences, like cleaning. Right, or, like my sink is full, and this is every time I go by it, I think, oh man, you know, yeah, kind of thing. exactly. Yeah, right, and so right. our research is some of the first to to look at this question and say, not only can we use money to buy ourselves into positive experiences, we can also use our discretionary income to buy ourselves out of negative experiences. And that also promotes happiness. I'm interested in how different kinds of people make decisions about money. Um, Are there specific examples you can give where wealthier people and poorer people make different kinds of decisions about money? So there are some examples where people with less money actually are more likely to buy durable goods. They're more likely to buy things for their home, to buy clothes, to buy purchases. And that's because you can have that right now. That's Mm -hmm. a very certain purchase. So if you don't have very much money, maybe you're worried about making an investment of an experience. You might be, what if that meal isn't good? Maybe then I could have spent that that $40 on something practical. There's some inherent uncertainty with these other kinds of ways you can spend money. And so people with less money want to make more certain purchases and material purchases are more certain. Hmm. Do you see differences around other, uh, you know, like do people as they age make different kinds of decisions about money and happiness? Yes. Yeah, so there, some of our research shows that older individuals are more likely to give up money in order to have time. So it seems they recognize the value of their time more so than the rest of us. They're getting wiser over time. Exactly. They're realizing what is paying off for them. Mm-hmm. It's interesting about this whole concept of uh, saving time and the potential perils of it, because things like dishwashers and microwaves, they were originally marketed. The whole idea was this is going to save you so much time. Um, And not that it hasn't saved people a lot of time, but nobody really seems to be in touch with that time save. I mean, they've just sort of moved on. That's been incorporated into their lives and they still feel really busy. We got used to it. Right. This is hedonic adaptation. But will that happen if you hire somebody to clean your house? And you'll just like, at the beginning, you're like, this is amazing. My house is so clean. I don't have to do anything. And then after a while, you know, you expect it. And it's, I I wonder if just like the happiness diminishes. It's totally possible. We see that effect with a lot of things. When you start a new exercise program, when you join a club, you get all the benefits Mm -hmm. right up front. Mm -hmm. And one thing that my collaborators and I have talked about is if you get a weekly house cleaning service, match that service with an activity like a hobby in which you're constantly learning. Hmm. So then not only are you having your house cleaned, but you're also pairing it with an experience or an activity that's positive in which you could experience increasingly, you know, increasing returns on that on that investment, like learning a new language or playing the guitar. So you mean it's buying you time to like learn French or something and then you realize like all this time has bought me this ability to get better and better at this language. So if you use money to buy time and then use that time in a very deliberate and thoughtful way, that's 
probably when you're going to get the most benefit over the long run. Do people who are salaried workers think differently about money than people who are hourly workers? And like hourly workers could go all the way from working in, in you know, um, a fast food restaurant to being a very high paid lawyer who makes hundreds of dollars an hour, but still they're not salaried, right? I just wonder if that makes you think differently about time, if like every 10 minutes or every half hour or something is compensated simply, you know, in these little chunks. Yes. So salaried workers and hourly workers do think about their time in very different ways. We have one one paper showing that just reminding people about the economic value of their time makes them less likely to help the environment, even if it takes five minutes to fill out a petition Mm. or to a little bit longer to recycle. So Mm. just even the act of thinking about the economic value of time makes people want to be less social, makes people want to be less pro-social. In the context of buying time, hourly wage workers, both at the higher and lower income spectrum, are less likely to give up money in order to have more time. Probably, again, because they say they're thinking, right. I know exactly how much my time is worth. <laughs> That's right. And I can do this myself and save myself X dollars. Right. See, I think a lot of people think, look, the reason that I'm cleaning my bathroom and not hiring somebody to clean my bathroom is because I have a job and I work let's say, five days a week, as many people do. I have Saturdays and Sundays off. And, you know, I mean, either I can clean it for free or I can pay somebody and then I just have less money to do whatever, including, like, save for retirement. And you know what I mean? And Saturday, nobody compensates me for my time. So my time is free and I might as well use it to do something useful. What's wrong with that way of thinking? I think that's a fair point, but I think you should think about almost your discretionary income as a portfolio. So setting aside a certain amount of money every month that you're going to spend on whatever it is you want. And that's your discretionary income. That doesn't come out of the pot of money that you're going to spend on retirement savings. And then thinking about that pot of money, it's easy to think, oh, well, I should, you know, it's easy to get caught up in online shopping or to spend, be not very deliberate about what we, how we spend that discretionary income. And so I think our research points to the idea that we need to sit down with our discretionary income every month and budget for time-saving purchases, budget for experiences. And maybe instead of thinking about this is what I spend and this is what I save, still do that, say this is what I'll spend and this is what I'll save. But in that spending category, being more deliberate and thoughtful about the kinds of different spending choices that you'll make to promote happiness. Do you feel like you can change people? If if people, if, if you know from many studies that time will generally make you, if you have time, that'll be make you happier than just having a pile of money with no time. Um, are you able to convince people that, you know, I think you could spend your money in a more effective way? I don't know the, the answer to this based mm-hmm. on the data that I have. But I imagine when something feels good, we're more likely to do it. Mm-hmm. So asking people to shift their behavior, giving them $40 maybe as part of our study, or asking people to think about these trade-offs in a more deliberate way so that people are maybe living closer to work and spending a bit more money on rent, but then not having a commute. And thinking about how their daily choices are either giving them more money or giving them more time. People 
tell me now, even after reading the the research that we've done, that this has shaped the way that I mm. think about the, the spending decisions I make. Mm. Because not only is, you know, are the spending decisions that I make on a daily basis affecting my money, but so often they're affecting how much time I have. What is the quality of that time? Mm. And so I think through slowly changing our behavior, we may then come to value time more than money taking a toll bridge and saving a few minutes stuck in traffic every day. Small decisions over time in which we're giving up money to have more free time Hmm. may then inform what we care about and in turn change our values. Ashley Willens is an assistant professor of business administration at Harvard Business School. She's the co-author of a study looking at the value of buying free time. Ashley, thanks so much for coming in. Thanks for having me. If you've got the money, honey, I've got the time. We've got a link to Ashley Willen's paper on the value of time, plus coverage of her study in the Washington Post that's at our website, innovationhub.org. Bring along your Cadillac, leave my old wreck behind. If you've got money, honey, I've got the time. Thanks to the people who helped put together this show. Senior producer Matt Purdy, associate producers Mark Sollinger and Mark Filipino, and engineer Doug Sugars. We also had production help from Sarah Frazier and Kaya Williams. From PRI and WGBH Radio, I'm Kara Miller, and this is Innovation Hub. Support for Innovation Hub comes from the Museum of Science in Boston, working to push the boundaries of what's possible. And from Dana-Farber Cancer Institute, danafarber.org slash beatcancer. And from Mimecast, committed to making email safer for business. PRI. Public Radio International.